Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. What up, podcast fam? This podcast is with special friend Dave LeBlanc. Dave is a professional drummer based out of New York City. He started playing the drums when he was nine years old and never stopped. He's had the privilege of playing professionally the last seven years and has played on Broadway on Mean Girls, Waitress with Shoshana Bean, The Barnstorm, and Paul Lauren, and many more. I met Dave volunteering at Experience Camps, a free one-week camp for kids ages 9 to 16 who have lost a loved one. When Dave's not playing the drums, (laughs) you can find him hanging with friends, but typically speaking, if you call Dave, he's practicing or playing the drums. Dave's band kills it. The Barnstorm, they play throughout New York City, and they are one hell of a good time. So yeah, without further ado, enjoy this podcast. We get into a little bit about Dave's story, Dave's transition into professional drummer, and building a life you love. So enjoy and make sure to leave a review at the end. So you're having a good day? Yeah, doing the the collab lab. I borrowed the idea from Lee that we had on our bowl and getting together people in my industry who've lost their jobs because of coronavirus, which we all, everyone's lost all their gigs and, and a ton of their students and getting everyone in our industry together to have like a one hour phone call about like what's happening. Sort of like, rather than just like a casual Zoom hang to catch up with buddies, it's more of like a business meeting. Like it's like an unofficial union in a sense to where we're like, we get together and it's like 10 to 15 people, some of whom know each other, some of whom don't. And we like share best practices updates on uh, uh, unemployment, updates on any grants that are coming from different places, then maybe go to be a little more lighthearted to be like, what are you practicing right now? What are you working on? Do you have any students? Kind of like best practice sharing and brainstorming about how to react to this situation that we're in as a freelance musician where we've lost all of our work. Mm, so smart. I can't take credit for it. I mean, I, I took the idea from Lee. But I mean, I guess it is, I did apply it to my own industry and and have adjusted it. So that's, I guess, been a good thing. But yeah, I did three last week. Each one has different people on it. And now we're recurring. So today was the second meeting of this one group. And it's the same group every week. I I may add people, but it's pretty much the same group. Uh, So I just got off that call. That was from uh, one to two. And uh, from that, uh, a friend of mine who I play music with a bunch called me and was like, hey, my 14-year-old nephew wants to learn drums. So like, you know, I think it's, it's a good thing. You know, I'm staying in touch with people in ways that maybe I w- you know, wouldn't have been able to. And I'm learning a ton like about stuff by talking to people about it. So, yeah. So you've definitely been productive during this time. I've been really productive. I, I think I've been actually more productive than before, not making any money, but I think I've been more productive. Honestly, I think I'm getting more done do you feel like you're sharpening your blades so later on you can make more money? Absolutely. I am mentally healthier than I've been in a long time and much more mentally healthy than I was before all of this came down. In terms of sharpening my blade, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm a little concerned that I'm just going to get, you know, thrown right back into it when it starts up again and my my old habits will pick up, you know, once my schedule says rehearsal, you know, practice, 
gig and a gig and a gig. And then there's a, there's a gig that goes till 2am and then a gig that starts at 7am the next morning. Will I continue this really kind of healthy mindset? I mean, it's easy to, it's easy to be productive when you, when you don't set an alarm, you sleep till 9am every day and you just do whatever you want, read, you know? So when I'm start back in the grind, will I be as productive and sharp? I don't know. I like to think of it that, it, that it's a sharpening of a sword for sure. Yeah. That's what I think is so interesting about this time. I feel like for most of the world, at least definitely within like my network and the people that I've been connecting with, it seems like this is the first time maybe in forever, like forever for a lot of people where they're actually thinking, okay, I have this many hours that I'm awake during the day. How do I want to spend those hours? And they're consciously thinking like, how do I want to spend my time? I mean, some people obviously it's interesting because we will dive into it more, but obviously like some people either getting laid off, no income, furloughed, essentially no income. Maybe for some of those people, it's setting off like a panic. But I think for a lot of people, it's probably created an interesting dialogue for themselves that they've never thought about before or previously where it's like, I have all this time. How do I want to spend this time? And as we shift towards a conversation around grief in, in a little bit, I think for me, at least, as it relates around around grief, I know when my dad died, that was when I first had this like inner dialogue going. That's like, shit, we don't live forever. How do I want to spend my time while I'm here? And at least from what I'm like seeing with some of my friends is they're starting to have dialogues with themselves. So it's like, shit, I didn't even like that job that I was working at. I don't know why I was doing that every day. So I don't know. That's It's just interesting to hear you talk a little bit about that, how you hope you don't go back maybe to some of the unhealthy habits, but where you're really having this constant dialogue that's like, how do I want to spend this time? Yeah, like, I think people are realizing through this, oh, wow, like, Thursday isn't any different than Sunday. Like, you know what I mean? Like, people are forced to stay at home, and they're not in their normal Monday through Friday, nine to five structure. And they come to find out that Sunday at four is the exact same as Monday at two. Like, there is no such thing as, you know, time is just time. Like it's just time. Like whether, you know, you know what I mean? Like at, at this point, some people can, they can binge watch a show on a Thursday and then work all day Sunday because like there is no more structure anymore. And I think that that's true about regular life. If you, sh- if you set your life up that way to be that way. And I've known that for, you know, three years now. And it was a transition to go from that normal nine to five into being a full-time musician where the days don't really matter. And, you know, like you Monday, you Monday, Tuesday, you, you know, middle of the day, you can do whatever you want. And interestingly enough, what I've, what I've already picked up from this stay at home order that we're in because of the uh, coronavirus is just this morning, for example, I got up and um, I did some computer work from 11 to 12. And then at 12, I got up off the computer and I got this, you know, practice pad, right. And I practiced for 30 minutes. Now this thing has been sitting in my apartment for three years and because of coronavirus, I've been playing this every day for 30 minutes because I can't play my drum set. I've been playing this practice pad. It's like, you know, obviously for people who don't know anything about drumming, it's like a resistance training belt or something. You know, like if you would normally work out at the gym for 45 minutes with a bunch of weights, it's like the equivalent of just having a pull-up bar. But you're still doing something, right? You're still working out. You're still using your body. You're still in drumming. You're still using your hands. Now, how come I didn't do that in my, my regular life before coronavirus? How come I didn't say... Every day at noon, I get the pad out and I play for 30 minutes. I mean, it was sitting in my apartment. What the hell's the difference? Like, w- w- you know what I mean? So like, 
it's truly remarkable how we only learn these things through adversity and realize that time is just like, it's just time. Like whether we're forced to stay at home or not, like I can still take this pad out and play for 30 minutes, whether it's, you know, we get these ideas in our head, like, well, it's Sunday, you know, I don't have to do that because it's Saturday or it's Sunday. Well, it's Friday night. You know what I mean? And now we're being forced to, to reckon with the fact that that doesn't actually mean anything. Like, you know, like during this stay at home order, when Friday night comes, what the hell does, what the hell does that even mean? Well, it's Friday night. Oh, it's Friday night. It's like, well, yeah. I wonder if things are going to change for like more corporate companies. If like, they're going to allow more flexible work from home schedules after all this, or I don't know, it is really interesting. And you're absolutely right. When I think about even now, I do think like it's Monday, Monday afternoon now. So I do think about pretty frequently where um, like even this weekend, I'm like, ah, it's, it's Sunday. I could go a little bit lighter today or take it easier today. And it is just a day. Like yesterday is literally no different than today. It's still time. Yeah. And I'm not discounting relaxing. And I think that another important thing I learned from this is I do need to spend a whole day doing nothing or just really just not focusing on my business at all. I don't mean don't rest or don't take a break or don't take a day off. What I mean is time is just time. Like there is no set time where you should take your time off here or should take time off there, you know? And I think more and more people are realizing this because of the stay at home, you know, quarantine situation. Yeah. And I think that ties very much into, you know, we only get one life. We only get one ride on the, on the merry-go-round, that whole idea. I think they kind of go hand in hand in the sense of like, you only have a short time in this earth. And then in addition to that, like, you know, what are you doing with your time? Because like, you know, it's just like your time is however you define it, I guess is, is what I'm getting at. And I'm learning that even more from this experience, but I kind of already knew that being a freelance musician, I had to face that a lot. And it is a weird challenge to go against the grain with your time like that. But I definitely think I I was wasting a lot of time. Like this coronavirus situation has made me figure out like, holy shit, like I was wasting a lot of time, like during the day, like just feeling sorry for myself or like just sitting around or like, you know, I was wasting a lot of time that could have been put to better use just by structuring it a little better. You know what I mean? Do you have any other Corona lessons since, since this virus has come into effect? Yeah. Family is very important, more important than work. As somebody who lives and dies for their career and their work, and it is my dream, family is still more important and it is very important. So coming home, like visiting families, coming home to see family and spend time about family. You know, I was, I was like really trying to find myself in New York the past couple of years and struggling with anxiety and, and I wouldn't say depression, but definitely anxiety, like bad anxiety. And I really hated it. And, um, you know, coming home for two weeks, like I feel so much better because I just am just spending time with my mom. I've been getting to know myself and my mom through my mom. So I think another lesson is to, to force myself to take a break and take a vacation and just spend time with family. You know, that family is very important. Awesome. It's really funny, the consciousness just around time. And I feel like I'm very conscious around like, this is exactly how I want to spend today, or this is exactly how I want to spend this time. Like, Yeah, the perfect day. We've talked about that. Yeah. And I feel like I try to really like live my life to a T observing that where it's like, I want to live my perfect day every day. And almost asking yourself constantly, am I living my perfect day today? And if the answer is no, then start to make changes. But even through all this, I made like a whole list. I have it in my bag. I made an entire list of like, 
things I want to do every day during the coronavirus. And to all the points that you just made, it's like, well, why don't I do that? Not during the pandemic. And I mean, the things that I wrote were like very much, I want to do 150 pull-ups a day, 100 push-ups a day, write once a day, five minutes of meditation a day. They were very much like just around, I guess, like myself, like things that I wanted to do, read, read a chapter in a book every day. And it's like coronavirus or not, I should be able to do those things no matter what, you know? <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. Well, the pull-ups, the push-ups, a lot of the fitness-related things were like because I couldn't get to a gym. But the thing that's interesting that I will say, so I wrote it down on a piece of paper and just like put it on the wall in front of me. The interesting observation there was that like I wrote way too much on that list. Like I could do it, but it takes a good amount of time. I don't always do the, the entire list to a T. But because I wrote it down and have it in front of me almost all day, like in front of my computer, it's like, oh, the the chances of me doing even 50% or 75% and sometimes 100% is so much higher. So I don't know. That was an interesting little observation. Yeah. And what what I find is interesting is that because you have all this time now, you're doing all these things like your pull-ups and you're reading one chapter a day and meditating for five minutes. And what's the one like key factor that's missing there and it's going out right because we're we're legally like not allowed to go out right now so it's like that's one of those things that like you know it's like well that's the one thing we're not doing which we still should be able to do that and i think it's still a good thing to go out however it's like where does it fit like how does it fit and how do i prioritize it right are you saying going out like go outside or going out and like see your friends yeah like going out to restaurants bars like going out in public, like, like to, to public gatherings, you know? Like, yeah. So that's, you know, it's just like, hmm, you know, and, and for me, my life's not, it's not a whole lot different if I didn't leave New York because I have my own schedule anyway. So this has been really good. I, my, I'm trying to just get in a habit of like this new schedule thing. Like, honestly, once this is back up and running and I have work again, I have gigs. The only thing that's going to be different for me is I'll have gigs. I mean, I don't have, a, I don't have a boss or office anyway. So what's going to be interesting is how can I implement this same schedule? You know, like how can I like say to myself, like on Saturday, like I woke up and I had breakfast, I planned my day, I made a call, I practiced 30 minutes. Then I went and went for a walk and lifted. And then I like watched some TV. And then I did like, I'm doing this online course from Yale and I'd spend an hour and a half doing that. And then I read for 15 minutes. The happiness course. It's really good. Are you, are you going to do it? I'm more intrigued just because like I've, I've heard from multiple people and I'm curious, like I'm a happy guy. So I'm curious what I would learn from it. It's um, I think you could probably teach the goddamn course. Honestly, uh, you, <laughs> you have so much insight, natural insight, but I'm doing it more because I want to just accomplish something. It's, it's less about the subject matter than it is. It's something for me that I can say I did and start and be like, I did that. And like, it's like a concrete thing where I can be like, I did that. But anyway, just my point being, like now that I have that schedule, the only thing I'm not doing because of coronavirus is playing a gig. So once I just insert that in there, I should have this perfect day where I, I, I meditate for five minutes. Yeah. I read for, I read one chapter, blah, blah, blah. And I practice and I go to a gig, you know, so it's been really interesting for me around time management with this, trying to keep my mind busy. And um, yeah, I just, you know, I always see the glass half full. I always look at the positive side of things. It's just my nature. I can't, I honestly can't see it any other way about anything prior to this recording i know you had mentioned that like since all this happened you're feeling so much better mentally a lot of your anxieties have gone away i'm just curious as it relates to sleep 
have you changed like your sleep cycle at all or has that been consistent i know for a while like this is going back probably a couple of years but when you were really into like goggins you were going hardcore with um like no sleep you were waking up like super early i guess like through all this since the virus hit i've changed my sleeping pattern for sure like i don't set an alarm now I'm not trying to like get to the gym first thing in the morning and i'm just like waking up sort of when my body wakes me up and um i guess that's been interesting too like i i feel so much better i'm just like an alarm isn't dinging at 6am i'm waking up when my body's like okay we've slept enough it's time to wake up yeah i'm doing the same thing i i sleep right now i sleep about midnight till 9am every day sometimes i'll wake up a little at 7 and fall back to sleep but but yeah i'm not i'm not setting an alarm i wasn't setting an alarm before this anyway though i think most of 2020 i wasn't setting an alarm because my job just doesn't require it and uh i don't know i guess i just was, yeah. i just got in a habit of just, just yeah waking up whenever i woke up it's hard to remember a time when I was that into Goggins waking up early. I, I don't ever remember that, but I'm glad you do because that's good to know about myself. I didn't know that. Yeah, you you were like, like I don't know if you actually were, but you're like, dude, do you think we need to sleep less? I remember you texting me being like, I think I think I need yeah. to sleep less. Like maybe yeah. you were having some yeah. inner talk where you're like, maybe I need to go harder. But you also sent me that that TED talk about the sleep the sleep scientist, which blew me away. That's like, I'm a, I'm a big disciple of that guy. I think that that shit's fascinating. Yeah, I don't know. I think that's why it's that's why I'm really curious when this is all said and done. Like, I'm curious if people are gonna. I mean, I think a lot of people are gonna be sort of maybe in a desperate need for a job and money and things like that. But I'm curious how many people are gonna change maybe whatever their life is. I'm curious if people are gonna change how they're living their life and like maybe just. I think like for a lot of friends, I think even they're thinking, "Shit, I don't even want to go and do that job." And I don't know why I'm stressing about going to that job or the work that I have at that job. And I think that that's like an interesting inner dialogue that can come from all this. Just like people really having that a moment to ask themselves, what is it they want to do? Yeah, I think personally, it's given me two feelings. One is that, you know, I'm in a industry in a job that is very volatile and, um, I lost all my work because of coronavirus for the time being still, still unsure when it's ever like when it's going to come back. But ironically, it has been, it has given me more resolve to say that there's nothing else I want to do with my life than be a, a musician, a professional drummer, because, you know, you would think that one's industry getting killed would make you feel like maybe I should do something else. But like it, it, it for, for me, it's just been like, well, I mean, what the fuck? I mean, it, if, if anything could just get wiped out anyway, like, you know what I mean? Like, why not do what you love? Like, and I already was doing it. So I want to keep doing it. And I always felt this way. Like, I'm just going to do it until like, they don't allow me like to do it anymore. Like maybe, maybe people just won't, maybe in 20 years, people just won't go see live music anymore. It'll all be the internet and we'll be living in the future, but I'm just going to do it until I can't do it anymore. And like, here's a great example. Like I'm, I'm back mm-hmm. at home with my mom because of Corona, like just hanging out with her and I don't know when the gigs are going to come back. I'm, I know they will, but like, I don't know when and in what way, but I'll be there to do it until I can't, until I literally can't. And that has made me feel like I know I made the right call with my life because I figured out I have savings. I hop on unemployment for a little bit, get another side job if I have to. I don't know. Like what? I just figure it out because there's nothing else I want to do anyway. I love that. That's a great transition point. You know, I started this podcast. Really, I thought initially I wanted the podcast to be around overcoming grief, tragedy, adversity. And while I think that's what I want, like a lot of the interviews to be about, I think it's not so much the grief that I want to focus on, but actually overcoming the tragedy 
the grief, the hardship, the adversity to ultimately build a life you love. And that's why I'm pumped you're my second guest because I don't think there's anyone I know who loves what they do more than you. So <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Danny. I just want to say a quick shout out to, to Sunil. To be the Scottie Pippen to Sunil's Michael Jordan is pretty awesome. And he's a big basketball fan. So if he <laughs> listens to this, I know he'll appreciate that. But to, to be your second guest after Sunil is our big shoes to follow. And he's he's quite an amazing guy and um, somebody that I look up to very much and a, a hero of mine. So that's really, really special. And I did listen to your, your interview with him and, and it was really good. It was really, really good. Oh, awesome. I appreciate that. Yeah, so that's why I'm pumped because like you are living, breathing proof that you can and you should follow, you know, what your heart desires and you can build a life that you love. So I'm sure we're gonna cover a lot of things on this podcast. I admire that you've found this perfect path where not in the sense that there aren't roadblocks and bumps along the road and things that you need to overcome, but it's like I remember the first time actually when we had like one of the first early bold groups, for those of you that listening to this, that's uh, essentially a bereavement group, stands for Brothers of Lost Dads. And we would get together once a month and sort of have a little chat around grief and life. One of the early ones we did was at the company that you were working at and you were, you were doing sales at that point in your life, right? Yeah. So I worked for this company called Revenate. I worked with this guy named Seth Dehart, who is still a really close friend and mentor. And he ran a sales office for this company. It was a satellite sales office in Manhattan. The company was based in San Francisco. And I got hired by him. I first moved to New York when I was 22 years old. And I have a degree in business from University of New Hampshire. I'm from New Hampshire. So I got went to the state school there, got a, a business degree, and then moved to the city, fully intended on being a professional, professional musician. You know, I had no interest in doing anything other than that. I imagine I would be working at like a Foot Locker or like a, you know, like a Starbucks or a Panera Bread, like just to make ends meet while I tried to make it as, as a musician. But I ended up stumbling upon this job offer uh, on the career website from my college. And I honestly felt like my unit, my university didn't provide me anything except for a degree and a drum teacher who I loved, who I studied with when I was there. I really didn't like college. I didn't like school. Funny enough, it actually connected me to my job, which then connected me to my future, which is super interesting to like to look back on and special. But I ended up applying for this job to work at this company in Soho, uh, the sales office as an intern. I was building lists, you know, doing stuff that you do right out of college or like an entry level sales job. But he was paying me 12 bucks an hour and uh, it wasn't a full-time position. It was just an internship. So I was living in Astoria, Queens, and I would take the R train 45 minutes round trip uh, every day to an hour into the city. And I was making 12 bucks an hour, which is, was significantly underpaid for somebody my age with my degree level. You know, most people with a business degree from UNH could get a, a sales position anywhere from, you know, 45,000 to 60,000 base plus commission, you know, and I was making 25 grand maybe that year working in, in the city. So you know, it was definitely against kind of going against the grain. And, and I remember when I first started at the job, I was like, I'm going to be a professional musician. That's what I want to do. Like, I'm going to be a famous musician. I want to be a musician. I'm going to be a rock, you know, not a rock star, but like, you know, like I'm going to be a musician. And uh, I just, just kept saying it, saying it. And then uh, eventually, it, you know, it did just happen. Uh, but yes, for three years, I was working a sales job and everyone at that company was amazing. 
some of my best friends at the time were we worked there. It was a very small office. And, you know, sort of the deal was with that job was I did cold calls and I did the shittiest job known to human, man or woman, uh, for three years. I went in every day and I made cold calls and sold the products every day, just like dialing for dollars. And that was it. That was what I did. But I got in an exchange, I was totally transparent about my passion. I didn't have to hide the fact that I wanted to make music for a living. And it sort of worked out, you know, like I just was a really hard worker and I just made sure I set up a bunch of meetings for my sales guys, kept the sales guys happy so I could play music. And, uh, you know, eventually I, I saved up enough money in my savings account. And in 2016, I decided to quit that job and become a full-time musician. And that's what I did. What made you want to, like, at what point were you like, okay, it's time to go? So I guess I, I was always thinking about that every day that was on my mind, but I sort of formulated this sort of, I formulated this plan where I was like, I need, I was like, I need a wedding band. I need like three or four original connections, like for original music. And I need uh, a couple of church gigs because in the city, like some of the most, the guaranteed money in the industry is weddings and church gigs because churches meet every Sunday and they pay. And then weddings are like, you know, really lucrative and, and they just, they happen all summer, all spring and all fall. So really the turning point was in 2015, I got hooked up with the Barnstorm, who you know and love. And uh, when I got in that band, I started to be like, okay, you know, I started to see the money was coming in to where I was making, I was making as much, if not more money playing music as I was my day job. And then what I did was I started to save all that extra cash and I just lived on the money from the day job until I had... I think I had like 40 grand. I think I saved like a lot. I was like really nervous, you know, and I saved like 40 grand and was like, that will be my fallback if I don't make it, you know, if I don't make it. But when I did quit the job, I did have, I had a handful of gigs that I knew for sure I was going to have these gigs. So I left because I knew that that, that it was time because I could see that I had enough gigs to sustain me. I will say it was an awkward transition. Like for anyone who wants to do this type of thing, it wasn't easy. There was like a five to six month window where it was like awkward because, you know, you can't do, you can only do so much as a human. You can't, you can't play from six to midnight and then get up and go to your job from nine to five and then go out again at seven and have a rehearsal and then go network and then stay up till two. And I mean, you know, it was starting to wear on me, you know what I mean? And like my performance was starting to slow. So there, there always is like some pushback, but that's really how I knew it was time was, was, it was a combination of gigs and then I had enough income from my other job, my, my drumming job, my drumming, and then I saved up a bunch of money. So you had like some financial comfort, yep. security, et yep. cetera. And then also, I guess you had, you did have like a, a plan moving forward and you had, you had the means to like continue to produce income. You were in a comfortable spot where you're like, I can, I can pursue this. It was the tipping point between, you know, I can't get any further without pursuing this full time at this point. So I hit a I hit a block where Got I was it. like, I need to pursue this full time to move further from where I am. So that's how I knew it was time to go. Another thing that happened was I was living in an apartment with my friend and I was contemplating staying on a little bit longer at the job, another six or seven months to like save up any more money. And then our apartment caught fire. Oh my God. Yeah. We were in the apartment, my friend, Nick and I, who I lived with for many years, he's still a really good friend of mine. We were in the apartment and uh, it caught on fire. And we had to escape the fire. We were in the apartment. It was like one in the morning. We were both sleeping. 
And uh, we, we were safe and everything worked out. It's all good. But it gave me this feeling of like, okay, like, you know, what the hell? Like, let's just, let's go for it. Like time to quit the job, you know, like time to go for it. Like there's no guarantees in life. You want to just go for it when you can, you know, you just never know when, when your apartment's going to catch fire or there's going to be a pandemic or like whatever, like you just got to go for it when it feels right. So that's what I did. During that fire, was that, was that just your apartment or was the whole building? The whole building. Yeah, it's a two-story building. The whole building was on caught fire. The fire started though in your apartment. It started in the hardware store in the basement of the building. Yeah, first floor. Yeah, you lost everything. Yes, but I didn't have anything valuable, <laughs> so it was fine. Like I, we had renters insurance. Uh, we had renters insurance, so we got like checks for the stuff, and uh, I just had like nothing valuable. I didn't lose anything valuable. Yeah, and I moved to I moved to a nicer apartment. Or, Got it. What about anything of your dad? Nothing of my dad's. No, luckily. I mean, I had a picture of him that he gave me this this plaque before he died, this like little keychain. Luckily, that didn't burn. Nothing burned. Nothing burned. Everything was, was anything important was saved. Yeah. Got it. So I left the city today to like escape the virus. And always when I leave my apartment, even if I'm leaving just for like to go to the gym, I wear my dad's necklace and I'm like, oh, do I leave it or do I take it? And if I leave it, I'm like, oh, what if someone breaks in? Or what if it's just gone when I come back? But yeah. So that was basically the point where you decided to leave and pursue it. What about, did you think like from the beginning, I'm going to move to the city and I'm just going to pursue this full time or no, that was never a thought. I think initially my thought was I'm going to move to the city and get like a side job. Like, like honestly, I like a footlocker. Like I said, like working at a, like, or like a gym, like, you know, I had, I had some experience in athletics in college. I worked for the intramural department and I figured I could work at like a, like a New York fitness club, you know, something with flexible hours. Like that's what my plan was, you know, like to do that until I got up and running. But, but really I had no clue. Like I just, I moved to the city with a bag, like my symbols and like a suitcase. I had, I never even visited New York. I had never even visited New York City in my life. I was 22 years old. I had never visited. I just moved there. I knew one person, my buddy, he's a bass player, and that was it. I had, I had a girlfriend at the time who lived there, but that didn't last. She was really nice, but it didn't last. But I moved there. To, I knew her and, and a bass player. I didn't know anyone. I just, I never even been. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's always crazy. when I think When I think of all my friends, I just remember like we weren't so close yet, I guess, when you were when you were still working at the sales job. And I think of like how I knew you then. And I saw you basically leave that and now pursue drumming. And to see sort of you continue to grow in this career path is like amazing. It's been awesome to watch. Thanks, Danny. I mean, I've been super fortunate. Like I have an amazing support network of friends and family. And then I've been really fortunate, dude. I've got, I've had some awesome opportunities. Like I've had some really great opportunities that honestly just feel like luck. They really do. Like I just been very fortunate bands that I've gotten into that have had some cool stuff, been asked to do cool stuff. People that have asked me to play with them or sub for them, you know, like total, just really, really, really fortunate, you know, like, so that's really how I feel about it. You know what I mean? Like, honestly. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to go backwards in time, I guess, to, your childhood. Obviously, there's a lot that you and I can cover and discuss, and I'm sure we'll we'll be back on the show soon enough. But, you know, really, I want these interviews to focus around overcoming something difficult, overcoming grief, and 
Obviously, we've mentioned your dad a few times now. So maybe you could take us back to your childhood, I guess, life before your dad died. And just sort of like I'm handing the ball to you. And maybe you could share a little bit about your story and your loss. And we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So my dad's death is very much tied to what I do for a living now. He was a drummer and he had a drum set in the basement in the house when I was growing up. So I was a fan of music since I can remember, you know, two years old. I I was, there's videos of me like a year and a half, two years old, like singing along to James Taylor songs and like walking around the house, like playing a plastic guitar, like just really drawn to music even before my dad got cancer. But he did get cancer when I was very young. He got cancer when I was five years old and he died when I was nine. And I started to play the drums right around the time he was really sick. So he had multiple myeloma and then it turned into leukemia when I was nine years old. And after he got diagnosed with leukemia, he died like a month later. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty fast disease. Like it, it, it kills people pretty, I mean, at least in 1990 or 1999, 2000, you know. So right around the time he was really sick is when I started to play drums. And people ask me sometimes like, like, how did you learn the drums? Or like, when did you start playing? And I was like, honestly, I do not remember. Like, I just knew how to play. It's one of those things where I just like knew how to play the drums. I just never, I always knew how to hold the sticks. I always knew how to put my foot. I always knew how to play a, like a backbeat or a groove. Like, I just knew how. And uh, I like to think that that's because of my dad. Like, he wasn't like, I don't think he was the best drummer in the world, but like, he was a drummer. And I think when he died, I sort of took that spirit out of him. I took, I think I took that like soul his soul and his spirit, like in, the, in terms of music sort of went into me as a nine-year-old. And I just like sort of got that gift, but I've always been into music. I've always been, my whole childhood was that way. And where it really started to spark was before he died, he gave, he made this little plaque for me that said, uh, follow your dreams. I'll be cheering you on. And he made that for me. So I was, I was nine years old and he, for some reason, there was some, there was some type of connection between the two of us where he knew that I would be, he didn't do that for my sister, Lisa. He, he didn't, you know, he made a different plaque. And for my sister, Julie, he made a different plaque, but which both of them said beautiful things. Mine said, follow your dreams. I mean, at nine years old. So something I was conveying to him (laughs) as a nine-year-old was that I had this dream of being a, you know, like a musician, like a famous musician, like a, like somebody who plays on stage in front of thousands of people. And I think there's something really special in that. So that's sort of like where it all got started. And one of the really one of the saddest things is the very first time I played drums on stage in front of anyone ever in public uh, was the fourth grade talent show. So I was nine years old. Yeah, it was eight, eight years old, nine years old. And he couldn't make it. He was actually in the hospital, which is really sad, you know, when you think about it. He never saw me play lot out. I mean, he saw me play at the house but he never saw me play out. And uh, it's really very sad to think about that. But, you know, it is what it is, right? I mean, I, I don't know. It's, you know, you just, you just move on. And, you know, you just think of the memories and, and you think of the gifts you do have. And I think of my mom and, and everything else that sort of came into my life as a result of that. So I think on a spiritual level, I really do connect the fact that I have this talent with the fact that he died. You know, I uh, I have no backing and proof of that, like obviously, but I just really, truly, for me, I just have to make sense of it somehow. Like I have to make sense of the fact that he died when I was nine years old. And I just am like, well, this must be the reason. Like I was given this gift of 
being able to play drums and play music. And now I'm able to make a living out of it. And I think that I have, for me, I have to tie that in to say like, because he died, I get this life where I get this present, you know, this gift that he sort of gave to me being the fact that he was a drummer. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. That's crazy that he gave you that plaque too. And you still have it. I still have it. I I have a photo of him and I on my uh, desk next to where I sleep, my nightstand. Uh, it's a f- picture of me and him. And then uh, it's a little plaque. It's a little card from my mom that my mom gave me one time. And then a little plaque from my dad that he made. It says, follow your dreams. I'll be cheering you on. Okay. So you're nine years old when he died. I'm curious, like following his death, right? You're just a kid. What was life like for you after his death? And I guess even before you said he got sick when he was when you were five, right? Yeah. So were you aware of things going on or not so much? No. I mean, we talked about it. You know, my mom and my dad handled it very well, especially for that day and age. I mean, 20 years now, 20 years later, there's a lot more conversation around grief and, you know, psychology and, and all those things. You know, in 1995, I think my mom and dad were very much ahead of the curve in terms of how they handled it. You know, it was like, we didn't get special treatment because he had cancer. You know, we talked about it openly at the dinner table. It, you know, there wasn't it like any like, oh, you can stay, you know, there was no like, well, go easy on them. Her dad has cancer, you know, like it, it was really just normal life. And from everything I've heard, my dad really lived life to the fullest, even up to the last day. I mean, my mom, just as recently as a couple of days ago, you know, I, I was asking about him and she was like, he, you know, that Tim McGraw song, like, I went skydiving. Like he finds out he gets cancer and he like does all these things that he, you know, you know, the Rocky yeah. mountain climb. And it's a, it's a really great song, but, but, you know, jokingly, my mom's like, you know, he didn't do that. Like he went to your soccer games. He like went to your recitals. He like went to, he like, he got cancer and, and just spent every minute he could with, with the kids, you know, with you kids, like he loved you guys. And so life was normal in that sense. But again, this is all stuff I hear. I mean, I don't, I, I don't remember it, but it's really nice. Even just to hear, it's really nice. And then I read this article in the Telegraph, which is the paper in Nashua. The day that he died, there was a whole article about him and what people said about him. And, you know, his funeral was just absolutely packed up, you know, people standing out in the street at his funeral. I mean, just a huge, huge funeral. So, you know, he was really loved and well-liked by everyone. You know, everyone loved Steve, you know, everyone loved Steve. Then when he died, you know, again, similarly, my mom like handled it really well. We went to, we went to counseling, like grief counseling for kids. This is long before experience camps. This is pre-experience camps. And it was, it was good. You know, it was handled correctly. My mom is an absolute rock star and, uh, you know, it was tough, but the, the three, me and my two sisters all turned out really well. You know, we all graduated college. We all have great jobs that we love and really awesome adult lives. So, you know, I can't speak too much about how it felt then, but I just know how it turned out. So it must've been fine. I mean, one sad thing that I will share that I've shared sometimes with people, uh, but I think this is a good place to share it is like, the concept of crying yourself to sleep is like a, it's like, I think a term that people use, you know, like she cried herself to sleep or, you know, you cry yourself to sleep. And um, I wonder how many people actually have done that, <laughs> like what that really means. And that is something I'll never forget from when my dad died is we were staying at my grandpa's house and my dad died at our house on the couch, which was the house that we grew up in was just down the street from my grandpa's. And 
he died in the morning, like two in the morning and we were woken up and we went down to, to the house to see him. And then we were, then we were brought back to my grandpa's house. And I, I'll never forget going to sleep in this bedroom upstairs in my grandpa's house that I stayed in whenever I stayed at my grandpa's. And I, and I'll never forget waking up the next morning after he died. And the last thing I remember was hysterically crying. Like, you know, like I, I just woke up that and it was like, I had no, like, I actually cried myself to sleep for real. Like I, it, mm-hmm. there was no like crying and then relax and then sleep. It was like, I cried hysterically until I just passed out. And then the next morning I woke up. I mean, I guess you could call that the next day. That was the next time the sun rose after my dad died. I was nine years old. I mean, it's, it's, it's really crazy. You know, it's really, really crazy. And we have friends that went through it from experience camps who were that young and it is pretty crazy. You know what I mean? It's pretty crazy to have that happen. Yeah. I lost my dad at 20 and my mom at 25 and right. I can never speak to losing someone as like a child or a kid, but it is like the days, if you know, the person's going to die, like the days leading up to that, I could just speak to that, like lying in your bed and just the world feels like a very dark gray place and you just don't want to get out of your bed. Or, I mean, it's funny you you bring that up with crying yourself to sleep. I just vividly remember going to sleep both nights after both my mom and dad died, separate occasions, and being in, in my bed thinking like just like numb almost, right? Like it's a very bizarre thing just feeling like in some ways, right? Like reality is starting to set set in, but in other ways, there's almost like at least, again, I wasn't, I guess a child when this happened, like when my dad died, it was just like, I felt so raw and numb and just didn't feel anything and just lying in my bed. And just like, you have so many feelings running through your body. I don't know. I remember both those nights being so bizarre, the nights leading up to it, the nights following and, you know, for several weeks, maybe even months following, but especially the the night. Well, I think it's, it's tragedy, right? I mean, I think with somebody, if a parent, it's sad when anybody dies, it's sad when a parent dies at any age, but if a parent dies between the ages of 70 and 90, it's slightly expected, right? I mean, you can, it's very sad still. However, if you're before 30, you know, like it's a tragedy, right? You know, if if that happens before you turn 40, 40, I mean, it's a tragedy. And like, I think that is the numbness, the crying yourself to sleep, the laying in bed, and you're just like, normal life just can't even piece into your brain correctly. You're just like, you know, that's where that feeling that you also experienced, you know? And I think out of that is how you have these bits, these bits of gold out of that experience is how you then, I guess it is maybe even almost like taking a mind altering drug, right? It's like, it really does reframe the way you look at the world. Like it has to. (laughs) Yeah. I always say like, I think, I think a significant death, or tragedy like that breaks you. And then I think you are in some ways broken as a human and it's up to you to build yourself back up. But I think it's up to you to do the building, right? I think, I mean, no one's going to build, build you back up. And at least in my experience, (laughs) I think about this a lot. One of the last things I told my mom before she died was we already lost dad and now you're going to die. I'm paraphrasing here, but nothing bad will ever happen to me again. Like the two worst things in the world have now happened. 
And she told me, don't be so naive. More bad things will happen to you. That's called life. And I think about that a lot because I don't know, just because you live through something hard or difficult doesn't mean you won't live through something worse, equal, or maybe just like a little bit better, but still really shitty in the future. And I think that's why, I mean, that's really why, you know, I wanted to start this because I think that's really living life. Like life isn't all sunshine and butterflies to quote Rocky. It is a dark world and there's beauty in it, but I think life will chew you up, spit you out, and it's up to you to to build a life you love no matter what. Yeah, I completely agree. Even taking the current situation that we're in, shelter in place for coronavirus, it's really terrible, but that's life. I mean, that is life. You know, bad, shitty things happen, bad things happen. And and it's up to you to figure out how to make the best of it and how to learn from it and how to, you know, put yourself back together, like you said, you know, and I, I, I try to do that, whether consciously or subconsciously in regards to my dad's death. I mean, in some ways, it's harder now than it was when I was nine. It's harder at 29 than at nine, which is maybe counterintuitive to what someone might think, but it's just, it just is, you know, so it's still a daily thing that is something I think about and have to work through. And that's crazy that your mom said that to you, dude. That's that's pretty epic. Yeah. My mom was very like, I mean, she was amazing, very loving, amazing woman, but very blunt and honest. And she would say it to me like how, how it was. And that's pretty epic though. Like, I love that. Yeah. I mean, essentially what, what happened was at first, you know, I sat next to her at the hospital, like at the hospital. And um, at this point we knew that she was, she was going to die. And I went in sort of to have like my last private one-on-one conversation with her and I sat down next to her was holding her hand and I told her life's so unfair and she interrupted me and was like but also so glorious well I'll save that for another time but that really completely changed or shifted my mindset and went from like the state of complete negativity and at that point I remember vividly like even you know going back to it I was sleeping on my sister's apartment just because I didn't want to sleep in my own apartment by myself and wanted to be with family. And my sister lived in a studio. So I was just like sleeping on her couch. And I remember I couldn't sleep. And I was thinking, this is the absolute worst thing unimaginable. I really felt like I did not want to keep living. When my mom told me that it like completely shifted my entire mindset. But following that in the same conversation, I was like, you know, now the like the world can never take from me again. And she told me, don't be so naive the world will most likely take from you again, because that's called living. Like it's just a part of life. Like just as there's equally good, there's equally bad. What an incredible message from somebody who is loves you so much and is also so close to, you know, death themselves and experienced death with your dad, who also loved your dad so much. Like what an incredible message from somebody, you know what I mean? And like, that's like mental steroids for you, dude. That is like, to, to me, like you get to wear that flag, you get to hold that flag for the rest of your life. So when when bad shit does happen to you, your perspective is you have that gift from your mom to say, like, she said to me, don't be so naive, like, because it truly is one of the worst things that can happen is having both of your parents die in the span of five years. Yeah. And then on top of that, one of those people is saying, don't worry, like something worse, bad shit happens all the time. And some people may say like, wow, that's really negative. But like, I look at that, like, that's beautiful. That's like, that's some tremendous armor for you. You know, that's, that's a tremendous advantage, I think, to that you now have this real outlook on the world that was given to you in a real way, not from some quote on Instagram, like from your mom on like, like, you know what I mean? Like that's real (laughs) shit that you can, you can really use to, 
Yeah, absolutely. I hear you. I completely agree. And my mom was like such a positive person too. Like she had such a will to live and obviously didn't want to die. But like, and she lived up until her very last moment. But it's really interesting, I guess, to see like when other, I mean, even let's use like the coronavirus just as an example. I mean, it's really shitty. Lots of people are losing their jobs and like, but like the world's going to be okay. I saw like um this guy who's a, a CEO of like a decent sized company who's in my network had a layoff, I think most of his staff, unfortunately. And um, he posted on LinkedIn and it was just like, someone messaged me like I he was it was a plea for like help I guess like he was probably in a bad spot I mean that's shitty obviously Um, I think he had like close to like 30 employees and I just sent sent him a message just being like we'll be okay like don't don't you know it's obviously easier said than done but I was just like you know we're gonna get through this together I promise don't worry there will be an end to this and there will be a new beginning and not to like play into that whole there's a time and a place to like feel to feel what you feel. And if that's like weak, not even weakness, just like you want to cry, cry. You want to feel sad, feel sad. Like there's a time and a place, but I do think it's important to build mental toughness and and grit and resilience to say, you know, like no matter what, I'm going to get myself, pick myself back up. And like, I'm going to build a life that I want no matter what. Cause like life's life's hard, you know, like totally, you, you know, using even your yeah. right now, you're, you don't have any, any income coming in. You have no gigs to play right now. And look at you, you're smiling on the other side of this and you're like, life's well, great. I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here talking to one of my best friends in the whole world. You're recognizing me as a person who's living and wants to ask me about my life. I mean, it, how, it doesn't get any better than that. Right. I mean, that's just right there. That's incredible. Okay. And then on top of it, you know, sunny, the sun is shining. You know, I have, uh, my mom is helping me out. I'm extremely, extremely grateful for her. She's looking after me and helping me out. I have tremendous people in my life. There's a lot to work through right now. There's a lot of stuff I got to I got to work through. But what is there to be sad about? I mean, nothing really. You know what I mean? And that could be genetics. That could be because of the experience I went through, and I flipped it with my dad dying, and I flipped it on its head and to the right way. Could be a combination of both. Honestly, it's probably a combination of both, right? But it's equally true. And I just want to say, while we're on the topic, it, it popped into my head when you when you were just saying about what your mom said to you, and then the guy with the LinkedIn. You know, that is really tough. I can't even imagine having to lay people off like that. But when I was pursuing my dream of being a professional musician in my mid-20s, to myself, I never said this out loud, but to myself to help boost my my confidence, I really felt like I had an advantage because my dad died. Like I felt like I had a perspective and an advantage that others didn't have in terms of just tenacity and resilience to like figure something out. Because there was a sense of like, well, it's not going to be worse than that. Like, you know what I mean? It can't be worse than that. You know what I mean? Like I can figure out like getting rejected from a gig or not getting a certain thing or having to get a day job again, or like having to live way out in Queens when everyone else is partying and living in, in, in Tribeca, you know, (laughs) it can't be worse than that. It's like, I already went through that. So it can't be worse than that. Right. So for better or for worse. Of course, I don't mean to downplay it. Laying off 40 people, a hundred people, even one person sucks. That's a shitty thing. I also can't imagine. But at the end of the day, like I always come back to like, what are your needs? And, you know, if you have your health, there's a lot of quotes like that. Like, if you have your health, you have wealth. And I really believe that like, just the op, like, we take so for granted as like a civilization. I mean, it's funny now, I guess we're all stuck inside, but we just take so much for granted. And just like the ability to, to wake up, get out of your bed and stand on two feet, yeah. you're blessed. Like, 
you have so much to be grateful for where you have your health under you and you can step out of bed and say I'm healthy and I don't have to worry about, let's just use the example of like a parent being sick. You know, if your parent or a sibling is sick and they're fighting for their life, you having to just being able to step out of your bed and say, I'm healthy is such a blessing. There's a podcast I like, Jocko's podcast. I love Jocko's podcast. Yeah, podcast is amazing. And he interviews a lot of people who like have lived through crazy war. And it- did you listen to the most recent one with the uh, that senator who lost his eye from Texas? Yeah, I'm listening to yeah, that right now. It's so good. Amazing, that guy's amazing a beast. podcast. So, I mean, <laughs> so like even just like people who come back from war who don't have all their limbs from from fighting, but they're still alive. And I think that. I mean, that's why sometimes like when I wake up and I just roll out of the bed and put two feet on the floor, I'm like, wow, I'm blessed. And I think you can come back to those things and feel that, really feel that and believe it. I do think you have somewhat of an advantage over other people, whatever it is you're trying to pursue, just because you're like me getting rejected or me having to go lay off some staff. it, It sucks, but I still have so much to be grateful for. I guess for me too, I I felt like it wasn't fair what happened to me. So I had to like, I felt like I needed to, you know, level the playing field. I needed, I I was like, it so wasn't fair what happened to me. I always felt like there had to be something more out there for me. Like that if I, if I truly in my heart had this passion to be, to live my life as a, as a musician, that it it had to happen because why would life be so cruel to me if it wasn't planning something equally maybe not equally, but if it wasn't planning something awesome too, like I just kind of was this, again, a spiritual thing that I felt that I think helped mentally prepare me to say like, this has to happen. This is going to happen for me. You know, again, with all the pieces in place of having so many amazing people ask me to play for them as a drummer. Like I, I, I won't say that I am saying I deserved it. I, what I mean is it sort of felt like when something that terrible happens, something else has to happen that's it's amazing and uh whether or not that that gratitude practice is what manifested it or if it was you know already predestined i don't know but like totally i think like when you have a parent die at a young age it can do one of two things it can make you feel really shitty about the world or you can be like wow like it can make you feel really grateful you know yeah it seems like it also helped you build a great amount of strength and inner inner resilience, I guess. Yeah. Where you felt like, uh, I don't know if that happened like right away, but it seems like now where you are today, it helped give you like some grit, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, also from what I've heard, my dad was like really strong from what I heard. He never complained. He never felt sorry for himself. He just like fought the cancer head on and never let it get in the way of, anything, you know, and never let it get in the way of, of us and as his kids and would be at uh, like Boy Scout meetings, like totally sick and would still make them, you know, so whether or not I saw that as a really young kid and didn't, can't remember it, but I internalized it in terms of his like perseverance and his like tenacity and his like strength of fighting this like really, really bad disease could have also very well had an effect on me. And that's why I would say he's my hero. You know what I mean? I have to hear about them in stories because I wasn't, I I can't remember because I was so young, but like equally so, like I've heard that he really fought, fought the disease head on. And that is what helps me say, like, keeps him as a hero in my mind. 
if my dad can do that, I can like, I can fight this. I can fight that. My dad fought cancer. You know, he didn't win. You know, a lot of people don't, unfortunately it sucks. It's a really terrible disease, but yeah. Well, I don't know. Do you think he didn't win or do you think yeah, that maybe, you know, there's, you know, the quote that's like, did you ever hear the quote? That's cancer doesn't beat you. You beat cancer by like how you live, why you live and in the manner in which you live. I totally believe that. Or by the kids, how you're, you know, he won Maybe he beat cancer because his kids and his wife, you know, earned it. Yeah. Yeah. Cancer statistics are a weird thing too, because I think it's inevitable. And I don't know, I guess like when your dad was sick, maybe the internet wasn't like as much of a thing, but Hey, like when my mom was sick and my dad, but even more so when my mom was sick, I like right away went like online, yeah. start Googling. And I guess you realize that like, yeah, the cancer stats, I think it ends after like a five year mark. Like if you, if you live beyond five years, you're technically are deemed that like you beat it, you, you become a statistic, or you beat it, but th- year six, yeah. you can die. So it's a very weird, like it's, I don't know. I don't know. It's a dark hole, but you realize, yeah, a lot of people unfortunately died to cancer. So you said your dad played the drums. He wasn't a professional musician. Though. No, he was, I guess you call him a semi-pro if there were a term for it. He played in the a band called the Houston Band. It was a cover band. I think they did some originals, but it was my dad's best friend, Chuck Houston. He's still a really close family friend and they grew up together. So they've been friends since they were like eight or nine years old. They grew up together in Worcester, Massachusetts. And they started a band in high school called the the, the Houston Band. And uh, they played in it for years up until my dad's 40th birthday. They did a show at his at our house. I think my dad may have, there may have been one or two years where he played like full time as a drummer when he was younger, but he was a salesman. They, they called him the Pants Man. He sold pants at a, at like a, like a men's clothing store. He sold pants. He was a, he worked for that same guy, Chuck Houston had a company, his family had a company selling um, power tools. So he was a, a, a tool salesman, uh, industrial tool salesman. And he played uh, on the side, but he only played in, in the Houston band. And then I think he played, or he played at our church. So the church that we went to Catholic church, he was the drummer in the church band. Do you think, did your dad want to pursue drumming like full-time professionally? Do you think? I don't know. I actually don't know. It's weird. I've never heard that from anyone. I don't know. I don't know if he did or, or not. I I don't think so. One of the things I know my mom said that he told me, he said to her at one point, she's, she's related this to me, that he said, in reference to me, he said, he's a better drummer at eight years old than I was at 18 years old. That's what he said. So maybe not. <laughs> maybe he like saw that you had some abilities that like he was like, Dave should yes. pursue this. yes. It sounds like yeah. maybe that's what it was. I know for my dad, he was always, probably since I was like 12 years old, he was whispering in my ear saying things like, there's two roads in life. You can either help others achieve their dreams or have others help you achieve that. your dreams. So I started my first business when I was 14 selling boxing gloves. And it was really because of him. Like I was working at a gym at the time. It was just like cleaning the gym. I was doing what like paperwork, cleaning the gym. and I love, I still love boxing, but I love boxing at the time. And my dad would always tell me like, you're going to one day need to pick a profession. And he's like, the absolute best thing you could do is follow the things you love most and turn that into a profession. And he really like encouraged me. He's like, you know, you love boxing. Why don't you sell boxing gloves? And that was sort of like how I started my first business at 14. And um, I guess like in all that, I'd say... Like he really reinforced and pushed this idea 
I think my dad, he loved what he did. He worked at the same company for over 20 years as an industrial designer. But before he started working there, he had his own firm. He had his own agency doing design work. He did a lot of freelance industrial design work. And the company that he ended up working for for 20 plus years, they said, hey, we're going to either hire you full time. He was doing freelance for them. He's like, we're going to hire you full time or we're going to stop our work together. And I think at the time, like I wasn't born yet, but maybe my oldest sister was and he was starting to build a family and he chose to take like this secure route where he's like, you know, this will be a lock that I can continue to pursue what I love and make good money doing it and have like a career trajectory, I guess. So I don't know, you know, I guess that was sort of the path he took. But I do think, although he he loved, like he really loved what he did, he said before he died, he had no regrets. But I feel like I can confidently say that I do think he regretted not like pursuing his own path. Like I think he found a way to make it work. But like, I think what his aspirations were, was that we were going to start a business together and he was going to go back to being able to design and I was going to sell his product or something like that to that nature. So I guess that's why my dad always was pushing me like from when I was 12, he was always telling me like, you know, you live once, you should pursue what it is you love. Man, that's awesome. I love hearing that. And I think that, you know, he was saying that to you when you guys, when he was alive and healthy and well, and I think it rings true even more so now, you know what I mean? And dude, you're doing it. It's like, it's really, it's really amazing. Like you were, you were an inspiring friend for sure. And you were wise beyond your years. None of my friends are younger than me. Like the fact that you were three years younger than me, I sometimes lose, I forget about that because you truly are very mature and like definitely like doing what he, what he like was saying to you and like living in his honor. Like you, you really are, you know what I mean? Like he would be very, very proud of you. Like, I truly mean that, you know? Oh, I appreciate that, Dave. It's really cool. Something that I thought of when you were saying all that is aside from all the stuff I've said about my dad and how it's, a, it's, it's led me to pursue this amazing career that I have that I uh, love to do. I've also heard he was kind of a of, um, conservative guy. Like he was a warrior a little bit. And we often joke about like, you know, would he have been nervous for me? Like, if he were alive, at, were, would he have been like, well, I don't know, it's not very stable, or like New York's really crowded, you know, it, it, we joke about it, because because I guess his personality in a, in a really endearing way was like that, you know, so I guess that's just life, right? You just don't, you don't know, you know, like, like what I have said, yeah. like, screw you, dad, I'm going, and then we had a weird relationship, I, you know, like, you just never know, you know, you know, you never know about life. So it's, it's really funny, but I, I, I try to hold on to that, that he said, follow your dreams. He like knew that I was going to want to do that and wanted to support me. And um, yeah, I had other people in my life who were like, you have to do what you love. I think your dad was so on point with that. You know, you have to, you know, 80% of your waking life is going to be working. Like better love what you're doing, you know? Yeah, for real. I love that you have the plaque and I'm happy it didn't get damaged in the fire. It's really awesome. It's very worn out. I do need, I should go get it cleaned because I've never cleaned it. Uh, and I don't actually keep it on my keychain. I'm a bit too nervous to, to walk around with it. I just leave it at home. I leave it at home. Yeah, that makes sense. So I feel like I'm curious, I guess, people are going to listen to this. You're a professional drummer. I feel like a lot of people will listen to this and think, okay, like if I want to go and pursue my dreams, what advice would you give? And I'm especially curious if like, you know, you were speaking to someone maybe who's like in high school or 
college or fresh out of college and they want to pursue, I guess, their professional dreams or even music as a whole, I'm curious, two-folded question, what advice you would give them and what advice you think they should ignore? Wow, that is a great, that's a great two-folded question. So I guess it depends. So it's somebody pursuing music dreams or you think just they're like a passion that they have for work or like... Let's do music. My advice to a high school student who wanted to be a professional musician or somebody who was pursuing music, I would tell them to get a business degree. I would tell them to go to school for business, either a two or four year program. I would uh, advise them to move to LA, Nashville, or New York City and go to college there if they have the financial means or figure out a way. You know, that's what this whole thing is about, right? I mean, you just figure out a way. But I would advise them to go and get a degree in business and music or just business. Um, So much of what being a professional musician is running your own business as much as it is being able to play the notes correctly. So I would advise people to have concrete business knowledge if you wanted to be a freelance musician or just a a musician, a band leader, or musician in general. I would move to a big city where there's like I said, those three big cities where most of the music industry takes place, like the live gigging. And I would just immediately start networking as soon as possible. I would I would ask everyone you can find for coffee or drinks, go to as many shows as you can, get your face out there while getting your college degree in like a business administration and or music, a little bit of both. I think some programs out there, you can do like a two-year degree in music, a two-year degree in business, or, you know, take like a four-year degree in business and take music lessons from, you know, privately from a teacher. I mean, if you like, let's just say you were a high school student and you, you wanted to be a musician, you moved to the city, you went to NYU and you took business at NYU. Like I could give you 20 drummers who are like the 20 greatest drummers in the world that all, like some of them, and they all live right in New York. You could take a hundred dollars twice a month and go study with them. Like they don't, you don't need a college, you know, like, and you could be getting a business degree and networking with, you could go take lessons from Sean Pelton, who's the SNL drummer, right? And you're, you're 19 years old and you're like meeting twice a month with the SNL drummer. Right. So just because you wanted lesson and your cash is still green, you know, he'll take it. You don't need to be, you know, I'll take it. Like, right. So that's what I would say would be the first step. And uh, just people, I would say anyone who wants to, has a dream that they want to follow, like most likely than not, it's going to be about who, you know, like people, like get out and meet people, like introduce yourself to people and go hang, go hang with people in your scene, no matter what, what it is you want to do with your life and your career, like go hang with the people who are doing it. And, uh, you know, just network with them. The other thing is discipline. Financial discipline is key, especially early on, you know, living with seven roommates, not going on vacation, not buying a fancy car. Financial discipline is going to be really, is is another really important thing, but trust me, it's worth it. (laughs) It's so worth it. (laughs) Like it is so worth it. Yeah. I think regardless if you, if you want to pursue music or not, I think financial discipline is a really important one. Especially for anyone really who wants to pursue maybe something that doesn't have the same financial stability that like a regular paying job would have. That's right. That's right. So I say like financial discipline, business sense. I'll say, I don't know how to translate this, but one thing that I know when I moved to New York, I didn't know how to read music. And I, I immediately identified that in order to, to be a professional musician in New York City. It's not required, but if you want to work, like you should know how to read charts, like read sheet music. In Nashville, it's called the Nashville number system, which I don't know how to read, but I don't live in Nashville. So if I had moved to Nashville, I would have learned that. So I moved to New York City and I was like, wow, Broadway is a huge industry here. Musical theater is a big industry. At the time, recording sessions, eh, sort of not really, but the big industry is Broadway. It is the big working industry in New York. 
and it's all music. It's sheet music. So I learned how to read sheet music. So, so identify some key areas in your, in the, through the dream you have that what are some things I really need to know that I just have to know, you know, and like learn those things. What would be the advice that you would give them to ignore? It's super cliche, but like definitely the naysayers, like people that are like, it's not a good idea or like, don't do it. You know, I had people in my life, like very few, but I had people who were like, man, you're not going to want to do that. Like that, you know, it's not a good idea. And like, I think people may say even subconsciously, they'll call you and tell you about their big promotion. They'll call you and tell you about like some of the things that are going on in the more traditional sense. And I think there's, they're, they're not naysaying you exactly, but they're sort of like, you know, talking to you about their thing. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, oh, you still in, you still in Queens? Oh, cool. Yeah. I just, dude, it's going really good at work. Like I got this big promotion. I got my own spot and, you know, you know, I'm living with my girl and, and, and you're like 23, 24. And like, just don't look at other people. Like, don't look at other people. Like I like, really stay focused in your lane, especially when you're young, because it'll be worth it in the end. Cause when you do make your dream happen, it's the best thing in the world. And it is like, it is like drugs. It is like nothing a drug can, can give you. Uh, I remember you know, back in December, one of the days I was playing at Waitress the Musical and I got, I came off stage and I remember getting on the subway and, uh, I just was like, I was high. I was like, I just high. I was literally high. Like, like, like it, as if I took a drug and it's totally illegal <laughs> and it's totally healthy. So <laughs> it's really an amazing, amazing feeling. So just trust that it's worth it. So when you're 23 and 24, you're younger, people are taking that money. They're going that traditional route and you're going through the route of your dreams, know that it's worth it. You know what I mean? I would say to ignore the naysayers, as cliche as that sounds, and ignore your own naysaying in your own head because you see what other people are doing. Yeah. Oh, advice for people going for their dreams, like start now. Like this, like you have, like start now, now, right now. Like start, like you have to start (laughs) because I'm a big believer in like go for it. But like really the longer you wait, the harder it is. I mean, if you, try to start your dream at 35 with two kids. It's, it's just inherently going to be harder than somebody who's 23 with no responsibilities. It just is like, so yeah. the sooner you start, the better. You need to take that first, that yeah. first step. I remember feeling very much like I need to make this happen now because the longer I wait, the harder it's going to be. I, there's a, there's a, a Russ, this rapper, he, he, he has this line. He says, the older you get, the more expensive lessons will be. And I think that that is really an awesome line because it's true. Like, as we get older, we have more responsibility. We have more things that we care about. So we have less time to, f- to screw around with. You know, we have less time to make a thousand dollars in one month because I didn't get any gigs. Like that's just not acceptable if you have three kids, right? I mean, I, I would imagine. So the sooner you start, the better is my advice. Yeah. It's funny, even with this podcast, I had this idea of like, I wanted it to be perfect, perfect. And I kept saying like perfect in my head, but there's like no perfect. You just need to start and like, things will evolve. And like, I think very much it's just, it's like anything else. It's like developing muscle. It's just like the consistency and the act of doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over again, you start to get better and you won't always get the results you want. But I think as long as you continue to put the work in and do it over and over and over again, maybe you can speak to this a little bit, but like, you know, maybe your dream is to play in front of 50,000 people. And it is, (laughs) maybe you'll get that. I hope so. Maybe not, but maybe you'll land on 25,000 people. 
Yeah, I think that's the Kanye line. If if you reach for the star, so if you fall, you land on a cloud. I mean, he didn't coin that line, but it's in a famous Kanye song that I love. That's the concept, right? I mean, I think that's totally that's totally you know realistic. I think it's a, it's a good balance between shooting for the stars, but also living like one day at a time. When I was working my day job, there was like a two to three year period where I I actually gave up drinking, which is interesting. I gave up drinking for my own personal reasons. However, it did really help. So that's another thing to consider if you're going for your dream and something that's a bit against the grain or or different than most people is if you want to be different than most people, you're going to have to be different than most people. Like, you know, like literally, like, you know, maybe it's not drinking, maybe for you, it's something else. I don't know. Maybe you wake up every day. Maybe you sleep on, you get six hours of sleep every day. You do something, right? I gave up drinking and, and right around the time I gave up drinking, I started to really focus on how to make my dream come true. And one of the things I I made sure I did was I did one thing every day. I just remember it was like, I have to do one thing every day towards my musical, my dream of being a musician. That could be editing the Facebook page I have, editing the website. It could be emailing one contact. It could be practicing for 30 minutes. I just have to do one thing every day. I remember thinking that just to nudge it a little bit further, a little bit further. But then at the same time, it's, yeah, it's having that big dream. I would write in my notepad every night. I would write in my notepad, I'm going to play my drums on stage in front of a thousand people. I'm going to play my drums on stage in front of thousands of people. I would write that. I would fill up an entire notepad, just write that shit out every night before I went to bed for years. I mean, years. And that gets into like the manifesting piece, which I believe very much in. And I I would write that. I have notepads that you can actually just repeat that sentence over and over, over and over, over and over. You still do it? Sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I sometimes do it. But I actually, I have now. Now I have not done a lot of gigs in front of that many people, but I've done a significant amount of gigs in the last year, year and a half in like on stage in front of thousands of people. And it's kind of a trip to be like, wow, like I actually wrote this down that I said I was going to do this manifesting it, you know, and I'm doing it, you know, like, again, I'm doing it because of at no point do I think I'm doing this because I did it. I mean, it's like I have been blessed with some amazing opportunities from people you know, that I can never thank enough, but it's like, mm-hmm. it is kind of a trip to be like, wow. Like, so I think that manifesting piece just as real as putting the actual work in is like the manifesting of it, like the actual dreaming of it. And I spoke about this a little bit on the first podcast, but just since you brought up the piece of manifesting, I feel like, especially in what you do, you can always set some goals. And it's like, when I get there, when I get there, when I get there and you're obviously a really happy guy, but you still have plenty of things that you're trying to pursue and striving for. So I'm curious if uh, you can share anything around your mindset around the idea of like the here and now, and also, I guess, just being happy with where you are, because I feel like especially with what you do, it's very easy to sort of get lost in this. And I should have had you brag for a little bit in terms of like all the places you played and the people you played for and to and with, but I feel like it's very easy to get lost and be like, ah, I'm not going to be happy unless I play for like 20,000 people tomorrow. Um, and I'm curious if like, I feel like you would have really interesting mindset or insight around that. Like, how are you so happy with where you are now? And like, how do you carry yourself that way as opposed to being like, it's not good enough. It's not good enough. And I'm sure there's like a balance with all that. It's because whatever gig I'm doing is the best gig in the world or else why am I there? Like, I'm always striving for more and I have dreams of more that I want, but like I'm happy for whatever gig I'm doing in that moment that I'm doing it because I chose to be there. I chose to play with these people in front of however many people, big or small it is. So I'm happy 
where I am. And I really believe in paying your dues. I, I do think that there is a, there is some type of universal, there's like a universe energy where like you have to pay your dues. Like you have to do small gigs. You have to intern at a crap, at a company for crappy pay. You have to do bar gigs. You have to, sometimes you'll do big gigs and then back down to the bar gigs. I mean, you know, that it's no reflection on your ability as a musician. And um, I think it comes to back to be, being happy. is just being humble to say like, you know, I'm just happy that, somebody's paying me to play music, man. I'm get, I'm, I'm going and I'm waking up today and like someone's going to pay me to play the drums like that. Whether there's a thousand people, 50,000 people, 10 people, whether it's five grand, $50, like somebody is paying me to play music. And like, just, I think it's, it'd be the, the double H I would say like happy equals humble, like humble equals happy. Like that's how you stay happy is by staying humble to be like, you know, you want the big stuff, but who am I to want that? Like I, you know, I'm just happy to be making music, you know? And, and playing and, and getting paid. Yeah. Someone sent me a quote a few months back, but it was essentially said something along the lines of the dream isn't the cars, the money, the fame. The dream is getting to wake up every day and practice your craft, doing what you love with the people you love. It's so true. It's so true, man. Because look at where we're sitting right now with coronavirus. Like, all my gigs are canceled. Like I was going to be at the Masters Golf Tournament this weekend. My band was scheduled to play Brooklyn Bowl. Uh, that was canceled. But look at all the amazing stuff I've gotten to do. Even if there was no more live music ever again. I mean, I look at all the great stuff I got to do and the amazing people that I met. Like that's where I'm able to be happy in the moment is to say like, I actually got to do those things. I got to experience that feeling, you know, and that like, that is enough, you know? I mean, of course I want more <laughs> and I want to do more, yeah. but if I never did anything again, I, I think I'd still be really happy because of all the stuff I got to do. Absolutely. I love that. Who would you say is the coolest person you played for and the coolest person you played with? Like the coolest person in the audience? Yeah. That you know of, obviously, because like, I'm sure you played where you're like, I don't know who's here. Questlove. Yeah. Questlove. So my band, the Barnstorm was Keegan, Michael Key from Key and Peele's wedding band. And there was two acts for the night. So the wedding was at the One World Trade Center, like the big Oculus thing at the top. And uh, there was two acts. It was, it was the Barnstorm was the band. And then Questlove was the DJ, like the after party DJ. And uh, he, he got there pretty early and he set up all his DJ equipment about four to five feet next to the drums. So he got to the party around like seven and we played from like seven to, to 10. And he sat, he literally, Questlove literally like sat on the DJ booth and like watched us play with his girl, his wife. I think it's his wife or his girlfriend. They just like chilled by the DJ booth. And like, I was, he was right there. I mean, we were playing, it was really nerve wracking and uh, awesome at the same time, but it was definitely nerve wracking. And then he came over and he sat down and he played a song and, and I handed him my sticks and he sat down and we had like a little exchange. So I would say the coolest person I played for would be Questlove. <laughs> the coolest person I've played with, I guess cool. I'll give you two because cool is relative. So I would say the coolest person I've played with would be Paul Rudd, which is the same party, Keegan's uh, birthday party. Paul Rudd got up on stage and sang uh, Oasis and uh, one of the most memorable nights of my life. There's a drum solo in uh, 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 th this Oasis song. 
Don't Look Back in Anger. And it's going into the final chorus of the song. It's da, it builds like da, 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 and it's like this iconic drum fill, right? So Paul Rudd is singing and we get to the part where it's about to come and Paul Rudd turns around and he looks at me and he just gives me this like double figure point. And I remember like looking up from the drums and I look up and I just see Paul Rudd is like two feet from me and he's like pointing at me like, go man. And I do this solo and then I crash and then I look up and Paul Rudd's hands are in the air, like, so Sally Kim. And that was probably one of the coolest experiences. And then I'll say uh, the best person I've played with would be a tie between Paul Lauren and Shoshana Bean uh, are two of the most talented people I've ever played with. Shoshana Bean is, I played with her last summer for an eight show run. She is incredibly talented, like one of the most talented people I've ever gotten to work with. She's amazing. She's a singer and a songwriter and Paul Lauren also, who I am incredibly fortunate to call a friend, a good friend. He is an incredible talent. So getting to play with those two people are like the, in my mind, they're the coolest. I mean, Paul Rudd is cool, but I feel like for me, they're cool. All right. Just last thing. How can people get a hold of you if, if you want them to follow you or? At Dave LeBlanc Drums on Instagram is the best place to reach me. I try right, to, I try to pump it. up my Instagram. I love, I love Instagram. So Dave LeBlanc Drums on Instagram. And then, yeah, you can find my email there. And I'm on Facebook too. But yeah, Dave LeBlanc Drums, that's the brand. All right. Love you, man. This was fun. Love you, Danny. Thank you so much, Danny. I love you, man. You're the best. All right. Stay safe. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.